This episode of Clever is brought to you by Interface. When we are trying to create spaces that bring out joy and make a person feel comfortable and secure, I think that we're making a better world. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, we're all about biophilic design. Did you know that adding biophilic elements to interiors can reduce stress, blood pressure, and heart rates, all while increasing productivity, creativity, and overall well-being? However, leveraging the health and wellness benefits of nature is more than just adding a few plants to a space. Features like natural light, vegetation, living walls, natural textures and materials, and nature views can significantly impact how we feel, where we work, live, learn, and heal. So to understand all of the benefits and opportunities of biophilic design, I'm breaking it down with industry experts who have dedicated their lives to this subject. I'm joined by Carrie Pei, Interface VP of Global Product Design, David Oki, founder of David Oki Designs, and Bill Browning, founding partner of Terrapin Bright Green and co-author of Nature Inside, a biophilic design guide. And we're unpacking the science, practical applications, and ROI of creating happier places with biophilic design. Here we go. I'm Carrie Pei. I work for Interface as Vice President of Global Design. I live between New York City and Serenby, Georgia. And I work primarily in LaGrange, Georgia. My title is Vice President of Global Design, but I head up an internal team and interface of product designers that were creating flooring systems that are both hard and soft for corporate, healthcare, some hospitality, and educational markets. My name is David Oakey. I actually was born in England. I'm a carpet designer. I came to the United States in 1973. In 1994, I started working for Interface. And Ray Anderson at that time challenged actually everyone to design sustainable products. And that changed my life forever. I am Bill Browning. I'm a partner in Terrapin Bright Green. We're a research and consulting firm doing work in the green building space. Home is Washington, D.C. I'd have to say we're passionate about how buildings and products impact people's lives, both psychologically and physiologically. Well, that's why we're here today. We want to get into how we can uh, support through the built environment, physical wellness, psychological wellness, and biophilic design is the nature of this conversation. So why don't we start by wrapping our heads around just what we mean by biophilic design? Biophilia is a term that came from the social psychologist Eric Fromm. The definition you most commonly see about an innate connection to nature comes from Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson. In many ways, it's what we've done intuitively in design for centuries, and that is thinking about how spaces connect us to nature and, and what makes us feel better and, and happier in spaces. So they're all spaces that you can think of that you'd go to, you know, sitting on the beach or looking at a green wall or sitting on the edge of a forest and looking out at the meadow can be really powerful experiences. When we talk about biophilic design, we're talking about translating those powerful experiences into the built environment. Correct. We do that sometimes directly and sometimes literally, and sometimes even by manipulating the shape of the space itself. Right. So some of the literal examples are an atrium or bringing plants directly into the space. And other ideas might be cantilevering to allow for a different perspective or vantage point. Right. So think about a dramatic example of biophilic design would be uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's falling water. Uh, cantilevering out over that waterfall is pretty exhilarating. The house is emerges out of the rocks that it was built from. And in fact, those rocks occur inside the house as well. So you have that direct connection and you're surrounded by this amazing uh, Pennsylvania forest. 
the wildlife and plants in that and the house's views and all out to that and connected into that. And then the sound of the water, when you're in the house, you you hear the water uh, flowing underneath you. It's pretty extraordinary. So we're talking about engaging all of the senses with those natural cues that can help to sort of reinforce your biorhythms, everything that, that humans respond to in nature, we can talk about those in terms of the built environment, in terms of interior design and product design. Carrie, what are some of the specific impacts on well-being, physical, psychological well-being, but also, you know, motivation and creativity that we can hope to design for when we're looking at biophilic design? In several studies, it shows that References to nature can calm a person and help them to focus. And so if you use this kind of approach, especially if you're designing for, let's say, an educational environment, you know, you can have students that are more attentive, they're able to think that through processes better, they're able to stay focused on a certain topic longer and at the same time, it's reducing their anxiety, reduces their blood pressure. So there are many different factors at play, not only cognitively, but also physically through references of nature that can impact the performance of a student or same thing can apply to the performance of a person in a workspace. To me, it seems obvious, but I think it's important that we talk about why does this feel so urgent right now? It's as if it, it should have happened yesterday all the, for the long, longest time. And it, you know, it did start yesterday, you know, to be quite honest, as Bill referenced at the very beginning is that for a long time, over a century, we've been designing intuitively with nature in mind, but to take the 14 patterns of biophilic design and apply them intentionally to our spaces that we're spending the majority of our days is necessary now because we have so much interruption and so much anxiety is developed by that interruption. Not only interruption from other noises or technology, but just interruption from surfaces reflecting too much sound, interruption from uh, email that's constantly coming through. There are so many things that distract us from the work that we are supposed to be focused on, that these slight little elements that we can incorporate into the space is really helpful in making a person feel more rested by the end of the day instead of so completely burnt out. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because burnout is, is a very real thing. And I think, you know, in light of the pandemic and other things that are going on in the world. We show up to every day with a fair amount of anxiety around things that aren't necessarily even work-related. To be able to do our best in the world and bring the best to our, our family and our community, we do need to be able to spend our, our time, our productive time, and our downtime in spaces that support us, support our well-being, and help to reduce anxiety as opposed to amplify it. And of course, we're having climate events that are causing some urgency. David, I wonder if you can talk to us about biophilic design and how it might relate to sustainability and connection to nature. I found biophilia after studying the work of Janine Benyus, Biomimicry, and that changed everything for me. Maybe it's my background of coming from the countryside of England. But there's one chapter in uh, Janine's book, How We Will Make Things, and it just changed me completely. It was really how we're going to learn from nature and not use nature. And there were some kind of very simple, basic things, as Janine talked about how we make things. In our factories, we have waste Uh, that go on the factory floor. There's no words such as waste in nature. It just doesn't exist. It's food for another species or the same species. You, You start to understand nature has a model that works, and it's been here for millions of years. And we kind of came in and started 
take control. We actually started with a workshop with Janine's uh, assistant, Dana Bymaster, and they said, how would nature design a carpet tile? But first, I have to give you that we were designing carpet tiles that are monolithic, uniform. Every carpet tile came out to look exactly like the other one. And we kind of called it quality. And if it didn't, reject it and throw it away. But we started to understand just principles of design in nature. And diversity is one of the biggest design principles in nature. Every rock, every leaf is different in color and design. It's kind of organized chaos. There's no sameness. And if nature was going to design a carpet tile, you'd think every tile would come out slightly different in color and design. And we took that principle of trying to make that. It was very difficult back then with the technology we have. It's much easier to do today. But we designed this product. Uh, we got it through manufacturing, opened the box. Each carpet tile was different in color and design. We threw it on the floor. It was random. And then all the other positive things came with that of we didn't have to use different dye lots from our supplier. We could uh, tell our customers they could actually replace a worn one, pop another one in, and, and they didn't have to see it. Uh, the waste reduction going through the plant and with their customers, all those came positive. So that connection of nature was really an important one, how we started. And even today, we probably design products, at least 60% of our designs are in the same principles. We still have customers who want monolithic, uniform, plainness, and we still have to design those. But uh, nature will eventually win out. <laughs> nature always wins. This idea of biophilic design is not just a hypothesis. There's a fair amount of data to support that these impacts, these outcomes, these benefits are, are real. Bill, can you talk about that a little bit? Like how evolved is the science and the study of biophilic design? So one of the first pieces of science that most people come across is the work of Texas A&M University under Roger Ulrich, who are looking at people recovering from one specific surgery. And those patients, some of them had a view to a brick wall, and the other patients had a view to some trees and shrubs. And they discovered that the patients who had the view to trees and shrubs, and they paired them all demographically and even meet, matched the paint color in their room, all people going through the same surgery, and they discovered that the people who saw the trees and shrubs were getting out of the hospital almost one day sooner than other patients. And they were taking far less painkillers and had far less negative nursing calls. That's incredible. Yeah, that's one of the first pieces of what's called evidence-based design related to that. And we see subsequent work with cardiac patients, even just showing them a, a picture of nature before or after surgery and seeing lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, and better recovery times. You know, moving forward, we see work using uh, advanced neuroscience to actually watch what's happening in the brain as people are experiencing nature. We know that when you're out walking in nature, you can get into this mode called soft fascination, where your prefrontal cortex quiets down, and so your brain is expending a lot less energy. So then when you have to come back and focus, you can be much more alert and unfocused and much more productive. And that experience of what's called attention restoration, the exposure time can be as little as 40 seconds. Longer is better, but the brain can shift that processing mode in just 40 seconds. And so we see work in looking at fractals, and which uh, are self-repeating patterns that occur all over in nature. And when we see those, it's easier for the brain to process that image. And so we see an almost immediate reduction in stress. Nature sounds also can have incredibly strong appeal. Uh, there's even now finally some measured evidence that certain smells impact the brain uh, fairly dramatically. And so there are all different ways of experiencing nature, but typically you can categorize the science or responses into sort of three broad categories. Improved physiological response, improved cognitive functioning, 
or related to emotions, mood, and preference. Uh, and the science really kind of falls into those three broad categories. That's so helpful and fascinating. And now I want to dive into some of the ways that we can actually look at applying biophilic design to interior spaces, product design, the, the built world, commercial spaces, homes, anything where human intervention can actually think about and conceive of, you know, implementing biophilic design. In your 20 plus years of studying, you've extracted or identified 15 patterns in nature that when translated into the built environment can have significant benefits. And you've kind of broken these out into three categories, uh, nature in the space, natural analogs, and nature of the space. So those three categories are really helpful for understanding these patterns. So I'd like to start with nature in the space. What do you mean by that? And what are some of the patterns in this category, Bill? It's direct, direct experiences of nature in the built environment. So seeing nature, seeing it out the window, seeing plants, seeing animals, seeing fish in a fish tank. That's the trees and shrubs and not the brick wall. Yeah, that's that's the visual connection to nature. That's okay. the most obvious in the first one. So that's the green wall. It's the terrarium. Non-visual connection to nature. As designers, we tend to default to what does it look like uh, and sometimes forget that there are lots of other different ways of experiencing nature. Haptic, you know, what's the touch and the texture? Mm-hmm. The acoustics, what does it sound like? Is there a water feature? Yeah. If I can combine senses, if I can experience it in more than one sense simultaneously, the impact is much stronger. We also know that stimuli is best if it's not completely repeated in a repeating pattern or if it's uh, non-rhythmic and it's sort of stochastic. And so something that will get our attention, unlike like a pendulum, which is motion that will get our attention when we first put it in the house, after a day or so, we completely ignore it. It's the same motion again and again. Airflow, breezes, and changes in temperature, and how we perceive temperature uh, is really important. Water is incredibly powerful. We respond to water in ways that overrides so many other things. In fact, even the sound of water will is by far the most effective masking sound you could ever use in a space. Not because of acoustics, but because of what's called psychoacoustics, which is the difference between all the sounds coming into your ear and which of those sounds the brain chooses to listen to. When you hear the sound of water, the brain will override most other sounds and just pay attention to that, which makes sense from a survival standpoint. It does. And then uh, light. Uh, we want changes in color and light and shadow and patterns and you know, the play of light and the changes of color of light, the circadian impact over the course of the day. And then the, the last pattern in that group, which is the biggest of all the groups, is connection to natural systems. So seeing the you know, changes over the course of the season, seeing things grow, seeing natural processes happen, and observing that and getting engaged with that can be incredibly powerful. That's so fascinating. David, I'm kind of curious, like as a designer and as somebody who works in a biophilic environment, how do you see nature in the space implemented around you? And, and how do you think about implementing it into products and interiors? The biggest example for us is our studio that we moved in in 1997, uh, designed by a good friend of mine, Elva Rubio. We have a little six-acre lot on an industrial park. It's just pretty much pine trees. And we commissioned Elva to design this studio back then. I think our first concepts of the building were so different from me. She came from actually South Georgia. Her story was when she was a young child, she went out to play and then there was this abandoned kind of barn with these live oaks actually growing through the windows. And that was one of the inspirations for our building. Uh, I didn't know what to do when I saw it, but I believed in her. The building did come out like kind of a southern barn with wood side, tin roof, and it sits in six acres 
of wooded lot. Uh, she nearly cried every time a tree was cut down. So we really squeezed the building in to n- nature. The connection with nature that we have every day here and the customers and people that have come through over 25 years now, uh, we have a beautiful place. And it's a place that it's hard to put the cost of designing sustainable building. One of the biggest things uh, as far as cost of the building are the people in it, not so much the upkeep of the building or even the cost of the building. It's the people. And if you can design a place that people want to come to work and you can recruit and retain, those are all things that I think this building with the connection of nature, and we have so many animals and birds and deer and turkey. It's something that I never dreamt of thinking about the building, but it's been just fantastic. And I think it was was in 2000 Business Week voted it one of the best buildings to work in by bringing nature indoors. Well, that does sound magical. Carrie, I would love to learn from you when you're thinking about designing products and spaces, are you designing for these reported benefits, these outcomes? And if so, are you thinking about what types of interventions to bring nature in? Absolutely. Well, some of the things that Bill was touching on in terms of, you know, having interrupted flow of sound or even visual refuge also surprises that, you know, one would come upon like as if they're walking in the woods. All those elements of the patterns, 14 patterns of biophilic design, our modular system fits perfectly into creating spaces that can incorporate those elements into design because we can use a bunch of different patterns from a variety of products and create spaces that are similar to a walk in the woods, you know, where you have a clearing of land and then you have some dense patch of trees and you're giving the impression of density and then openness and trying to incorporate abstractly some of these 14 patterns of biophilic design into the floor scape. Well, and it sounds like that particular example also incorporates the idea of soft fascination or attention restoration that he was talking about. One of the things that Bill was touching on, too, when he was talking about water, it reminded me very much of something that I had learned through a study that Mount Sinai was working on in epigenetic programming. Epigenetic programming suggests that from even before birth, when we're in vitro, which, you know, we're floating in a tank of water, basically, we start connecting neurologically with different systems of sound or our sensitivity to light, even when, you know, from the time of birth, you know, there's some suggestions that it's before birth, but from the time of birth, throughout our lives, we're making these connections that we carry forward with us. So a lot of those experiences that we have as children, when we're playing outdoors, most of the time, those neural connectivities are reconnected in spaces as an adult that can remind us of that joy that we experienced when we're a child. Oh, I can imagine that would be amazing for creativity. Absolutely. I'm constantly thinking of the spaces that I loved as a child when when we're designing collections and trying to capture some of that joy, some of that playfulness, and in, in whatever way that we can, two-dimensionally, you know, somewhat three-dimensionally, we can we can sculpt with pile. We have hard surfaces and soft surfaces that we can pair together intentionally. But when we are trying to create spaces that bring out joy and make a person feel comfortable and secure, I think that we're making a better world. That's the underlying motivation, reason, purpose for all of this. If everyone feels better 
then everything is better. (laughs) (laughs) So Bill, the the first one, nature in the space, it's the plants, it's the views of nature, it's the non-rhythmic and the flow of air and lighting, obviously. The next category is natural analogs. These are things like biomorphic forms and patterns, actually using natural material, material connection to nature, and a really interesting one, complexity and order. Can you kind of illustrate those for us? So the use of natural materials is is kind of the easy one in that one. There is a lot of work in what's called visual preferencing that indicates that people really love natural materials or or patterns that have references to those materials. Then the biomorphic forms, uh, you know, there are certain forms and shapes in the, the uh, golden mean and the golden spiral and Fibonacci sequence that occur again and again in natural systems that when we see them in human designed objects, it's easier for us to process. And then the complexity in order is, you know, if it's simple and regular and the same thing again and again, we get bored very quickly. If it's too much chaos, then it can actually elicit a fear response. But in the sweet spot in that are these sorts of patterns that are types of fractals. And fractals are self-repeating patterns. They can be exact fractals, things like Mandelbrot sets, or more commonly in nature, what you see are called statistical fractals. So great examples would be the dappled light under trees, Mm. or waves moving on a beach, or flames dancing in a fireplace. Those are all great examples of statistical fractals. And our brain is so predisposed to be able to process those that the neuroscience is doing that work, call it fractal fluency. The brain is fluent with fractals, and so when we see those sorts of patterns in human-designed objects, you get a drop in stress almost immediately. That's amazing. So that makes me want to talk to you, Carrie, about the Rising Science Collection that Interface is releasing. That has something to do with fractal geometries, yes? Yes, absolutely. The collection is two parts. Um, One is angular and the other is abstract and organic. It's a story about how, you know, the staircase is a bridge to the garden or geometry can be a bridge to organic and abstract spaces and then they can live together. But there's fractals in both of these ideas. You know, many people think that nature has no right angles, when in fact, there are many examples of it in nature. And the first one that always comes to my mind is pyrite. The idea that you can take two completely different ideas of something that's really geometric, and marry it with something that's very organic, is something that people don't normally think work well together, it has to be either one or the other. So what we were trying to do in this collection is make it a playful collection where one abstracts into the other. You know, we find these examples in nature all the time. Whereas like, you know, you have the leaf, which does seem very geometric at times, living with the bark, which looks, you know, really quite beautiful together in the tree. The Rising Science Collection has in the geometric products that are really strong angles they're made up of little components, little elements that dither into nothingness. But the nothingness where your eye can rest is actually quite complicated little landscape of various textures and pile heights, and, but they're not perfectly flat. That irregularity of that surface, which looks solid, is something that I think Bill kind of touched on a little bit when he was referring to interruptions. And we feel more comfortable with things that have an irregularity to them. That angular product abstracts through dithering as if it vaporizes into the garden, which is the more organic products that have an organization to them, but without looking gridded or too modular. So it was really a fun collection to work on. And it's all tied together through surprising little amounts of color. They're not big color fields, but the color just pops up here and there in surprising little ways. It, it does sound like 
ways for your eyes to rest, but also wake up and find interest. And, and playfulness too, like you're like following the dots. This would fall under the complexity and order category or biomorphic forms and patterns or material connection <laughs> to nature or all of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, does it really have to fit into one? No. <laughs> You'll see overlaps like that in the patterns, particularly when you get into this topic. So David, you've also designed a collection called Granite Mountain. Can you talk about your inspiration for that and where overlaps land here? Actually, Granite Mountain came really from us not being able to go to trade shows around the world, uh, to Milan and New York and London, which, you know, we often go and see what's happening in furniture, architecture, other design to get inspired. We were prevented by traveling and we found a walk just 20 miles south of Atlanta, which was an abandoned quarry. It was Arabia Mountain. It was a mountain of granite rock. It was kind of very barren, except for solution pits that formed in the mountain that had all this foliage and attracted all the different species and birds. And the colors were just unbelievable in these little solution pits. It kind of reminded me of, again, area rugs, but the interesting, as a designer, that I've struggled all my life designing carpet squares and rectangles to go into squares and rectangle office. And we always look at nature. Nature th thrives on variety, randomness, flexible, curved, organic, diverse, which sometimes is very different from how man is designed, again, we talk about uniformity, rigid, angular, geometric, monolithic, static. Uh, they're different things. And I think we try as much as we can to be inspired by nature with the organic diversity. Even if we're still making them in rectangle and squares, we want that movement and organic movement and diverse pattern and change to come into an interior. I think the most interesting thing, it was an abandoned granite quarry where they went in to take these slabs of granite and they were used in New York and Washington. Uh, I think the product was granite was titled gray, a beautiful swirled organic pattern. But nature is now taken back this land and we have nature interrupted with these squares and right angles and blocks. And there's things that we fight against every day to try and get this movement and organic shape into our products. We watch now of the rise of more organic architecture all around the world and curves being brought inside, whether it's in furniture, whether it's in architectural details, we seem to be shifting towards that, you know, again, much softer biophilic feel. It kind of forced us in a new direction, which I'm really pleased about. So uh, it, it was a fun collection. Well, they both sound like they've achieved that ability to kind of soothe and connect that we're looking for with biophilic design. The third category is nature of the space. This is a really interesting category. It refers to how the space is arranged in the architectural elements. Can you describe what you're, you're referring to with nature of the space examples? Sure. So we have a series of patterns in that. Uh, the first two are prospect and refuge. So prospect is an unimpeded view through space. It's really important for wayfinding, perceptions of safety, standing on the hill or standing on Granite Mountain and looking off to the distance. Prospect, you know, is being able to see through the space and figure out where you're going. It's uh, getting that lay of the land in a, in a glance. Exactly. And then refuge is where my back is protected and I may have some canopy overhead. You know, so think the high back booth in the restaurant, right? Particularly if it's around the edge of the restaurant and up on a plinth. And that, now I have a view all up and down the rest of the restaurant. So now I have prospect and refuge together. 
Or think about, I love craftsman architecture, and think about the classic craftsman bungalow with the big porch on the front and the overhanging roof, and you're up 18 inches, and so you're sitting on the porch, and you can see all up and down the street. Your back is protected, so there's prospect and refuge together. Mystery is the next one. You know, that's the curving path in the forest. You just got to go see around the edge or and you're walking down the street and you smell those cookies from the bakery and you just got to go look in the window. So you feel compelled to go explore. Maybe my favorite pattern is risk peril. It's not one you want to use too much, but uh, going back to a great Frank Wright example, think about the Guggenheim Museum, that big spiral in the center. And you go up to the top and you know you look over that edge and it's pretty exhilarating, and it's made even more exhilarating by the fact that Wright intentionally makes the railings just a little bit low. So when you're looking over that edge, it feels a little uncomfortable. You're not going to fall, but it's a lot more exhilarating than if it was you know, this really high ledge up there. And then finally, what took us from 14 patterns to 15 patterns was a pattern we've recently added. Let me describe the experience. You walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you stop, and your eyes get wide, and your mouth drops open. You walk into a great cathedral, and you see that same response. What's that pattern? Awe. Yeah. And so awe, it was a pattern we've known for a while, but it wasn't really until the last two, two and a half years, there was enough science to actually finally define it and uh, include it in our pattern set. Oh my gosh, I want to read those studies. (laughs) Yeah, so Carrie, how would you go about designing awe into a space? Let's say you don't have the uh, 100 years and budget to build a cathedral, but you do want to incorporate awe into a built environment. What would you do? First thing I would do is look to nature and then try to encapsulate some of the most essential elements of what was transpiring that awe. Was it color? Was it texture? Was it light? Was it shadow? Was it glisten? Was it matte? You know, tried to interpret whatever that recipe is into a system that could be a combination of textures. And And that's a great insight because people tend to think awe is only, you know, this grand spaces, but uh, you see awe experiences with pieces of art. You see it with music. And there are even just who are helping people do just go out and sort of have a walk and experience awe just by what's around you. David touched on a couple of things when he was talking about last year, how we weren't able to travel. And travel is so essential to building that vocabulary of awe. You know, but when you can't travel... Then you have to go to, you know, what you have available. In his finding Arabia Mountain, I'm sure he had that sense of awe, not just to know that it was only 20 miles away, but that sense of awe when you get there and this spectacular view. David, I'm going to ask you next, but I've got goosebumps as we're talking about this one. And I think it's really interesting what you touched on, because the mind does automatically think of grand spaces, but it doesn't have to happen in grand spaces. I'm thinking of cenotes, these underground cave pools of water to swim in, or even some of James Terrell's like smaller oculus, you know, pieces where it's just the, the way the light is captured and manipulated that, Mm -hmm. that just really gets to that awe feeling. David, I can see why this would be so beneficial to design this into our spaces. I'm happy just talking about it. (laughs) The one thing, and uh, Bill, I think, touched on this a little earlier. We look at the whole biophilic design process, and I think change is one of the things that nature has on our interior space. Uh, And that means color and design change from morning to light, day to day, season to season, and we go through awe uh, sometimes at Pond Studios and the next week that all is gone. And I think change is a really important element for biophilic design. 
I saw a project in San Francisco where the window treatments were bringing design patterns on the floor, just like Bill talked about, a walk along a maybe a wooded path where the canopy of leaves are putting a pattern on the floor, but it comes and it goes. Bringing elements of change into a space are things that I really start to think can create those moments. It's uh, kind of like you're walking through the woods, maybe on a kind of a warm day, and suddenly a gust of wind hits you in the face and you say, well, that felt good. Why can't we have those feelings as we walk through a space in our heating and cooling? Uh, Why do we have to have it on a certain temperature? Can it change? Can it move? So this whole thing about change is something that I'd like to see in the future. Even if we have static products, technology can help with change in color and smell, and it's affecting all the senses. Yes, we can have awe, and it can come, and it can go. That's a good point. Awe can happen, especially if it happens on a non-rhythmic schedule in the built environment. I want to talk about what might be on some of our listeners' minds, which is, Is biophilic design expensive? It doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. I mean, bringing a plant in is a pretty low-cost choice you can make that leans towards biophilic design. But if someone was going to invest in biophilic design, what would the return on the investment be? How would they measure that? Well, we we can measure it in (laughs) lots of different ways. We've seen improvements in healing and hospitals. We see changes in the way that uh, people perceive hotels and actually use the lobbies. Uh, they'll spend more time in the lobby and, and experience a biophilic lobby than just move through it. We see grains in productivity. We did a year-long study in a sixth-grade mathematics classroom. The changes we made were interface carpetile with a pattern of waving grass and window shades that had the tree branch shadows uh, silk screened onto them and some wallpaper around the top of frieze around the top of the classroom that was an abstraction of palm leaves. What we saw was dramatically improved academic performance in the classroom. But we also did biometric testing well, and we saw that the students compared to the control classroom, their stress recovery characteristics improved over the 90 minutes they were in class, whereas control classroom, there was no change. We see increases in retail sales, uh, all sorts of amazing shifts and, and things happening as ways that economic and social benefits from reduced crime and social housing, lots and lots of different uh, benefits. That is amazing. I'm sold. I would love to hear from all three of you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a personal story of your connection to biophilic design. Carrie, let's start with you. I know you live in a biophilic community and how would you say that's impacted your own life? So I'm a New Yorker. I spent my whole career in New York, but you know, I was raised in Nebraska, lots of land, lots of brothers and sisters. My family's in floristry. I grew up outdoors all the time, always around flowers and, and plants and things. And then when I went to New York, it was such a difference, you know, total concrete jungle. So what I found in Serenby is a real like combination between the two. Because what I love about New York so much is that people are constantly searching for what's next and what's better. And they listen to these ideas and they do conduct these studies and they pay attention to them and they do invest in these kind of you know, ideas and and companies that support these ideas. And people are very progressive and they really do support the green movement in many, many ways with their money and with their intellect. But it's hard to slow down there. We live blocks away from Central Park and raised our daughter with that as her backyard. And even there in Central Park, it's still hard to slow down. So come to Serenby and you find these people that are very international very invested in biophilic design, very invested in wellness and um, spending their life's careers supporting those ideas in those industries. But 
in a very calm and peaceful, and they walk the talk here. Everything is pretty much farm to table. We have our plants delivered by our local farm, which is in the center of town. We have our neighborhoods that are intentionally designed so that anytime you walk out the door, your first vision is of nature. It's 30% residential, 70% nature, and designed intentionally like that. And you have a wellness neighborhood, an agricultural neighborhood, and a cultural neighborhood. So you're connected to the arts as well, which is very, almost a religious experience for me. Art, that's how I connect to nature and to my God. But I live in Serenby and work in Serenby, you know, as much as I can, but it carries with me to the studio down in LaGrange and the team that I work with and, and how we respond to the ideas that we're putting forward in our uh, collections that we're designing. And do you find that you're actually enjoying some of these benefits like pro-social behavior and communal feelings and improved motivation and (laughs) cognitive restoration? I mean, I want all of these things. (laughs) You know, learning about all this stuff in the last six years that I've been with Interface that of course it was always really interesting when I was designing textiles up in New York and it was always part of the the conversation. But coming to Interface, it's more than just conversation. It's a mission and it's something that you really need to understand and be able to speak about with knowledge. Otherwise, you're not credible. That has really impacted the conversations that I have in New York actually, on the weekends that I'm there. And it's made my whole life so much richer. Oh, I love to hear that. And David, you told us that wonderful story about Pond Studios where you work. What is your personal benefit? It's definitely changed the course of your career. How has it changed you personally, physically, psychologically? Well, the whole concept, as soon as we were challenged, was sustainable, changed my life completely. But I went through phases. I said I I was born in England, uh, seven miles from a town called Kidderminster, which in the 60s was the carpet capital of the world. And they really made Axminster and Wilton carpets woven with wool carpet. And my first connection was from my father, who would go and get the waste wool from the manufacturers and bring it to his fields. He grew vegetables. And he would spread the waste wool on the ground as fertilizer. Now, back then, it was the 60s, and the colors were kind of bright. It was the, you know, Austin Powers pink and purple and lime green. Each fall, as a young boy, I'd see my father do it. And one year, it stopped. And I said, my father, why aren't we getting the waste wool? And he said, the factories have started to add nylon to the product, Now I can't use it as a fertilizer. That story meant, as a young boy, just the disappointment of seeing the fields turn bright colors in the fall. But 50 years later, understanding, first, we have to understand of taking from nature. Lots of people think wool is the most sustainable. Yes, it's sustainable, but we all cannot have wool carpet. We would have too many sheep in the world. It's the carrying capacity. And what I learned from Janine is we're not going to use nature. We have to learn from nature. And today we make carpet from waste, old carpet, fishing nets. We recycle it again. So we're not using natural materials. We're learning from nature and doing it. And it's probably an exciting, you know, journey that I've been on. And I'm glad I've been a part of it. I can see that it's not just a journey. It's a it's a mission. Bill, you've dedicated your life's work to studying biophilic design and helping the rest of us understand it. You've literally written the book on it. The more that you know about it, where do you feel the urgency is in terms of proselytizing? 
I think the experience of the pandemic where those of us who were fortunate enough could work from home and others then had to work even more hours and jobs disconnected from nature, I think as a society we've become much, much more aware of connection to nature. And if you look at as things have opened up, tourism to the national parks has just exploded states we get it we know that nature is important i think what has been intuitive has become much more openly obvious and discussed i'll admit that you know getting into biophilia was not a planned route we were doing work at rocky mountain institute on documenting early green buildings and we were seeing surprising changes in in worker productivity in these buildings and we thought, well, it's, you know, it's sunlight, so I can see better, you know, better color rendition and things like that. And we undertook an experiment funded by the U.S. Department of Energy uh, with one of the folks involved was a environmental psychologist, Judith Earwagon from University of Washington. And she introduced us to the concept of biofuel there and said, this may be the mechanism. And what we realized in many ways that the radical gains in productivity that we were seeing, which had huge financial benefits, in many ways were just sort of placeholders for this really bigger issue of how do we design spaces and design products that support people's health and well-being. That's really the driver for biophilia. And it's more relevant, important, and urgent than ever. Well, this has been so informative and fascinating. I'm so grateful. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with me today and with our listeners. This has been great. Well, thank you, Amy. This has been fantastic hanging out with David and Bill. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Uh, got me excited again to start back into biophilia tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I love any time I can spend with Carrie and David. They are such inspirations for me. I love seeing what they, uh, what they come up with next. It's always amazing. Thanks for listening. To see images and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please do us a favor and rate and review, it really does help us out. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. 